Drew Tales Live on PPM-TV is made possible through the generous support of Artists Collaborative Theatre of New England, Act One, presenting outstanding performances of Stories with Heart at the West End Studio Theatre in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. For further information, contact 603-300-2986 or on the web at act1nh.org. With additional support from Pat Spaulding, who really wants to know, hey, what's your story? And by contributions from Jan Hansen. I can't believe I'm 92, and, but I am. And uh, my father said to me, but he says, said, when you're building your life, the most important things are the four L's. And the first L is listening. And that's what we do when you come to, to, to Jonesboro. We listen. We listen. And it's a rare thing these days, listening. Listening to the human voice. Listening to one person talking to another person. Listening. We have forgotten how to listen. How to sit down and talk and have a good time listening. My daddy said, listen. God gave you two ears and one mouth, and he expected you to use them in that proportion, which is a good lesson. The first L is listening, and the next L is learning. You have to learn something different all your life. Don't ever quit learning, but listening and learning and laughing is the third L, he said. We've all got to laugh, laugh at ourselves, laugh at something every day. The world is a magical, wonderful place, he says, but we need to laugh together. Don't laugh at people, my father said, you laugh with people. And you can never hate anyone you've really laughed with. Laughter binds people together. The most important L is loving. Loving. That God put us here to love each other, to enjoy each other, to help each other, to laugh together, to learn together, to listen together, but to love each other. And there's nothing that says I love you more pleasantly and more plainly than storytelling. Everybody here has stories that you need to tell, need to tell to somebody you love. And now is the time to do it. Go home and tell stories and tell each one with love, ending with, I love you. Thanks to Catherine Tucker Windham, who is speaking at the 2010 Alabama Storytelling Festival at 90 years old about the importance of storytelling. Our mission at True Tales Live is to provide people with an encouraging space in which to tell their first-person experience stories, stories that reflect our community's personal and cultural diversity. Using on-stage TV, radio, and public venues, and offering workshops, 
in the art and practice of storytelling, we aim to help people bridge differences and build understanding and respect for all. Each of our shows has a theme to help people get people's minds turning, coming up with stories that they have to tell. Tonight's theme is activism. A very simple definition of activism is action to bring about political or social change. So tonight we'll hear stories of activism from six tellers. We have Kathy Wolf, April Perrington, Robin Reed, Sylvia Olson, Gordon Merrick, and Arnie Alpert. They each have 10 minute limit for their story. And our MC, Pat Spaulding, will introduce each one to you. Let's welcome Pat Spaulding to introduce our first teller to you. Welcome, Pat. Thank you, Amy. I'm really happy to be here. This is quite exciting, our first night, and uh, we have a full audience. I recognize many of the faces, not everybody, though, so this is great. The first up is the brave Kathy Wolf, <laughs> who lives in Kittery, Maine. Now, she used to be a writer for a living, but she currently enjoys telling stories and spending time in her backyard with her goldfish and two black cats, Tux and Ido. <laughs> it's a really nice backyard. I'm not so keen for the cats. <laughs> <laughs> Kathy would like to see the Badlands and a giant sequoia and the Everglades. She'd like to change her life, move it a little further away from the backyard. And that's why she is currently seeking a reliable but used camper van to rent or buy to support her quest for new adventure. So you can talk to Kathy tonight if you've got a tip. She's going to tell us about an adventure from her past that made international headlines and helped create a grassroots anti-nuclear power movement across the country. It also happened to change her life. Kathy's story tonight is titled, Fighting the Nuke. Come on up, Kathy. Hi. It's a perfect April morning. Warm, sunny, just a light breeze, and the kind of air that makes absolutely everything glitter. I'm walking east on Route 107 in southern New Hampshire with about 300 other people. We all slept in a goat field the night before. We're carrying signs and backpacks and sleeping bags. Our destination is the construction site of the Seabrook Nuke. And a lot of us have telephone numbers written on the back of our hand or on our forearm in ballpoint pen, because we were told not to try and carry anything identifiable with us. When we get to Route 1, we start cheering, because looking off to the left coming south is a huge column of other occupiers, all with their backpacks and signs. And looking off to the right coming north, another column, as far as you can see, of occupiers. It was April 30th. 1977, and 2,000 people from 32 states had come to join the Clamshell Alliance occupation. Police were everywhere, but they let us walk onto the site. It wasn't much more than a big dirt parking lot at the time. Another huge cheer went out when we got to that parking lot and looked out to the east, and there, winding their way across the marsh, the occupiers who'd come in by boat. We'd all made it. After a lot of hugging, we put up our tents, we dug our latrines, and we settled in. 
we were a little surprised that we weren't arrested right away. In fact, the arrest didn't start till the next afternoon. It took until after midnight for the police to arrest all of us. Many occupiers on principle refused to cooperate and they were dragged away to the trucks or the waiting buses. In all, there were 1,415 people arrested that, after, that day, that night. If it had been one year earlier, I would have been running around asking people how they spelled their last name, why they opposed nuclear power, and I'd be thinking and probably worrying about where I was going to find a phone to file the story. But I'd left the Associated Press the summer before, realizing that way too much of my life involved the word allegedly. The Clamshell Alliance was born that summer, 1976. I got involved almost immediately, helping with media. And that first summer, there were two occupations and about 200 clamshell arrests. By fall, we had an office on a second floor of a building on Congress Street in downtown Portsmouth. And we had issued a national call for the 19, 1977 occupation. The only furniture in that office was a, a three-legged card table. We propped the fourth corner up on the windowsill and the, uh, a couple of two wobbly chairs. We had a phone, one, of course, and we had the almighty mimeograph machine. There weren't any computers or cell phones back then. By early spring, I was sleeping on the floor next to that mimeograph machine more often than I wasn't because uh, my home was like an hour commute all the way west of Concord. We had told occupiers to be ready for maybe two nights at most in jail, but it turned out we were locked up in five different National Guard armories for 12 nights. Even today, when people who, uh, when you meet people who said they had been at Seabrook, usually one of the first questions asked is, which armory were you in? <laughs> Some people bailed out after just a few days or for jobs and for family, for illness, and a few Wesleyan University kids, a Grateful Dead concert. <laughs> a man in the uh, Manchester Armory was diagnosed with German measles, and 50 women suddenly were pregnant and bailed out. <laughs> but then Manchester, I was told, was supposed to be the craziest armory. It had twice as many occupiers as any other, and the guards refused to turn out the lights at night, and there was a lot of confusion, and people were actually hiding in large cardboard packing boxes. At least that's what people said. On the other hand, the Concord Armory appeared to be the most mellow one, with every evening a huge circle of care and share. And one afternoon, a couple of occupiers just wandered away from the Concord Armory, bought themselves some ice cream, and wandered back. They became known as the Haagen-Dazs too. <laughs> I was in the Summersworth Armory. So was, my, thank goodness, my affinity group, which was mainly people I had recruited from an apple orchard in Hopkinton, New Hampshire, where I had been working after I left the Associated Press. Affinity groups were 6 to 12 or 15 people who knew each other and looked out for each other, and that's how the clan organized itself. In the Summersworth Armory, we received a steady diet of McDonald's meals. Not so great for the vegetarians, but then we had advised occupiers to carry uh, their own food, at least to last a couple of days, so there were a lot of provisions to share, at least initially. 
during our civil rights suit, which was filed by our lawyers to try and get us out of these armories, uh, the head of the Nash, uh, New Hampshire National Guard, a guy named John Blatzos, who I think owned a restaurant in Manchester, he got up to testify and he said, those occupiers have what he called creative food. He turned to the judge and he said, judge, have you ever heard of couscous? <laughs> It was 1977, remember. <laughs> now, also in Summersworth were the, uh, the Crumbs of Bliss, a street theater group from DeKalb, Illinois. They immediately organized nightly talent shows that seemed to be enjoyed by the Guard as much as by all of us. And there was a more politically hardcore affinity group from the Brooklyn-based War Resisters League. About halfway through our incarceration, somebody in power became offended by the number of couples sharing sleeping bags in Summersworth. They decided to move the women to another armory. We decided to protest. We tied all our shoes together and made a giant pile in the middle of the gymnasium floor. This gymnasium, by the way, served for eating, sleeping, meeting, having talent shows, etc. We were always in this one huge room. We figured that if our, they, we couldn't have shoes, they wouldn't take us someplace else. Uh, the guardsmen on orders separated the women from the men and formed a line between us. What followed was a three-hour standoff. We talked to guards individually about nuclear power, about their lives, about our lives. We tried real hard for eye contact, which wasn't that easy to get. But mostly, we sang the same song for at least two of those hours. <laughs> Love, 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 people, we are made for love. Love each other as yourself. We are one. We sang it in rounds. We sang it in 200-part harmony. <laughs> and finally, the order came, and all the guards just dispersed. Maybe they couldn't find another army that was willing to take a bunch of rowdy women, but <laughs> I don't know. We were asked, just asked, in fact, begged, with a please to sleep in different parts of the gymnasium at night. It was a small victory, but it felt really good. After 12 days, the state finally agreed to summarily find us all guilty over and uh, criminal trespass was our charge. They offered us automatic appeals, and they sent us home. Some people thought it was kind of a kangaroo court, and actually one person came dressed as a kangaroo who's telling a story here later tonight. <laughs> Eventually, all charges were dismissed. I moved to the seacoast, and I kept working with Clamshell for another year and a half, finally quitting because I needed to earn a living. Or maybe I just burned out. Or maybe it was both. The nuke went online in 1990, 14 years after construction started. Half the size and about, I think it was seven times the cost, originally planned. So you could say the clamshell lost. The nuke was built. But in the wake of that 1977 occupation, the movement spread. The Shad Alliance in New York, the Abalone Alliance in California, the Virginia Sunshine Alliance, the Sunflower Alliance in Kansas, and many others. And Wall Street started getting nervous. Don't know if it was because of the in-your-face demonstrations, or they just realized finally that it was a bad fiscal deal. But they stopped backing nuke construction, and they stopped building nukes in the United States. 
The Clamshell Alliance changed my life. People from those days are still my friends. In fact, there's several of them here tonight. I met the father of my son in the clamshell. Most of all, though, I learned what it was to feel passionately about something, to engage completely in something, something that was way bigger than myself. It's a feeling, a, a fire that, that fuels and at the same time consumes you. And I found a new voice, one I think I had heard before but never really shared, the strong, wonderful voice of people speaking up together, working together for something they know is good and right and necessary. May we all find and cherish that voice in the next four years. Thank you, Kathy. Next up, we have April Purrington, who became involved in activism as soon as life allowed. She joined SADD, Students Against Destructive Decisions, was a member of her college's feminist collective, volunteered for women's crisis services, and planned to someday open her own shelter for women. She worked in mental health, assisted pregnant teenagers, and helped families apply for food stamps and Medicaid, although April now refers to herself as an unschooling mom to three sparkly little humans in New Hampshire, a person who spends her days in relentless pursuit of a peaceful world, a happy family, and the perfect loaf of sourdough bread. She spent the last six months working to form Southern New Hampshire's first surge, showing up for racial justice group and is looking forward to a robust activism in the near future. April says that like the women she worked with, she has struggled long and hard to find her voice. Tonight, she will describe some of those struggles in her story, Feast. So in the 80s, there was this commercial, it was a PSA on TV about sexual harassment. A woman in a boxy yellow blouse is told by her boss that if she wants to keep her job, she needs to up the sexy factor. She looks him square in the eye and she says, this is sexual harassment and I don't have to take it. I was probably about eight years old the first time I saw this. Even as a child, the whole bit seemed more like a liability waiver than a promise to keep women safe. In preschool, I was dragged in from recess by my teacher for showing my best friend James my fancy new underwear set. It was embroidered with little butterflies and flowers, and everybody knows that beautiful things should be shared. My teacher parked me at a little table in the dark and empty classroom and she told me to put my head down on my arms and keep it there. This is the first time I remember encountering the harsh reality of my female body and the impossible rules our society has crafted for it. By the time I saw that sexual harassment PSA, I had been living in this world long enough to have a sense of how things would go. Bodily autonomy for females was meant to be as real as unicorns and pixie dust. Being a girl meant being public property. 
This inevitability was solidified in the fifth grade when the boys in my class developed a clever rating system for their female peers. I remember walking down the hall with trepidation, seeing groups of boys huddling, huddled together, whispering and snickering. Outside of school, I was still playing with my dolls on the weekend. But within those cinder block walls, I was desperate to understand why the number six was hissed at me and why it seared like pain. Really though, my thoughts on the matter were irrelevant. The woman in the yellow blouse was only ever suggesting a hollow attempt at retaining ownership. She was going through the motions. There would be no salvation. Girls were supposed to fight back against the public nature of the female body, just with no real expectation that it would make any difference. My freshman year of high school, I found myself alone and friendless at a large new school. I think I was relieved when a group of five or six boys one day demanded I sit down with them. They were older than me, probably fifth or sixth year seniors, but their invitation felt like reprieve from the torture of sitting alone. My brain conjured an image of big brotherly figures, bringing me into their circle for friendship and protection. It seemed innocent enough when they first complimented my shirt. And when they continued on to describe the nature of my nipples showing underneath, I was too flustered to know how to react. For 20 minutes, I sat there while they discussed my anatomy in terms I had never before heard. The woman in the yellow blouse seemed to shrug her shoulders at me. What you gonna do? The next day I was invited back to their table again. I didn't see many other options, so I sat down. They didn't waste time bringing the conversation back to my body, this time making their way south, describing in excruciating detail what they would do to me. I can't tell you what they said because my brain has decided that these are words I cannot pair together. I can't form their sentences. You can imagine what their words may have been, but I will promise you it was worse. And as you work to revise your version to keep up, I will again and again assure you that you're still not there yet. I'm 36 years old. I have birthed three children. Their words still have the power to shame me. For the next several months, I remained a prisoner at the lunch table, bound in shame. I begged my parents to let me transfer schools, to let me stay home and homeschool for the rest of the year. I could never tell them the motivation behind my frenetic request, the torment of the entire situation overpowering my brain before I could even ever fathom putting words around it. I finished out the last two months of the school year eating alone, hitting away safely inside a metal bathroom stall. My humiliation bounced off the walls around me, keeping me safely locked inside. I knew what rape was and how children sometimes fall prey to a sexual predator. These things were bad with a capital B-A-D. The laws against them were big, fat, shiny promises about bodily autonomy. But the lady in the yellow blouse had handled her situation right then and there, using nothing more than her big girl words. She was harassed and she handled it. It was no big deal. My lunchroom misery was something I should have been able to ward off with one confident sentence. The fact that it continued was my fault. The pain I suffered was on me. Poor baby. I'd had to hear words that made me feel uncomfortable. 
They had never laid a hand on my body, not once. By all means, I had no reason to feel what I felt, that they had raped me with their words, and that this was somehow deserving of deep-seated pain and shame. So I kind of never told a soul. I locked that story up along with my 14-year-old self inside that bathroom stall. Sometimes I'd hear her in there, fists banging at the walls. I'd angrily remind her that she was never physically harmed, and thus the situation was inconsequential. She was being melodramatic, the way she carried on about words. For 22 years, I walked through life carrying her story safely tucked and locked away. But then, one assuming Friday in October, my Facebook feed suddenly started humming with Donald Trump's gruff and serpentine voice, talking about his entitlement to women's bodies. Grab them by the pussy. All of the words from the lunch table came rushing back at me in a swell of painful confusion that caught in my throat and blurred my vision. My 14-year-old self started pounding at the walls around her in a surge of fury. She kicked the door off the stall where I left her and started to roar. I asked her to keep her voice down and she spit at me. I raised my own voice and told her to shut up. We wrestled, her fingers wrapped coldly around my throat. I begged her to go away. She set her jaw and let out a huff. This wisp of a girl hunted and haunted me in sleep and wakefulness, roaring and roaring and roaring. I have always been involved in activism. In college, I volunteered at Women's Crisis Services. I quit my college cheerleading team to be more active in our feminist collective. I've walked through the streets shouting, hey, hey, ho, ho, sexual assault has got to go. I've stood and protested war in the Bush administration. I've marched for NAMI and sat and listened to the stories of people whose ghosts are so relentless in their endless roaring that the idea of sanity becomes elusive and exhausting. I've worked with the homeless, the hungry, the uninsured. I've done all of these things with a fiery intensity in my heart, but a frailty in my voice. I carefully packaged apologies with my passion and begged forgiveness of anyone who might find themselves burdened by my convictions. I seem to walk through life with my own liability waiver. I'm here, and I believe, and I will fight, and I hope that's okay. Do you need me to quiet down? <laughs> if I spoke too loudly, those lunchroom words might just find their way out. My 14-year-old could hold our secret no longer. She tantrum enraged. She chopped off all my hair when I wasn't paying attention. And then suddenly I was talking about the words. Hearing myself at 36 talk about these words that had ensnared me, I realized that my long-denied feelings were valid. What happened at the lunchroom table was not insignificant. The PSA from the 80s may have been crafted with the best of intentions, but for me it served to minimize sexual harassment and, the put, and put the burden of resolution on the victim. And that's the crux of it. Being an activist is to question and challenge the resolutions offered by our institutions. When I told that 14-year-old to shut up, I was letting society dictate how loudly I should speak and what I should say. Now I'm standing here and talking about words that are over 20 years old. I've decided they don't get to imprison me any longer. I marched back to high school and went back to that lunch table and I swept my 14-year-old up in my arms. I never should have left her there. We left that school and heard the echo of the doors slamming shut behind us. 
She and I sat alone in my car and together we traced over the broken words from 22 years ago. We nervously tried them on and clumsily tried to peel away their power. Someday soon, I'm going to drive her to the ocean at night. We're going to sit on the rocks and release those words into the waves and the stars, watching them crash apart into a million insignificant pieces of nothing. I'm taking my voice back. That was a powerful story, powerful words. Thank you for your voice. Up next is Robin Reed from Portsmouth. He's been active on the New Hampshire political scene for a good long time. He served four terms in the New Hampshire House of Representatives, has been on the campaign staff for several state and federal candidates for office, and has coordinated renewable energy programs for Governor Shaheen's administration. But before all that, back in the late 60s and early 70s that we've heard about already, he drove a taxi to keep himself afloat while working against the war in Vietnam and with the Clamshell Alliance to oppose construction of the Seabrook nuclear power plant. His story about his work as a VISTA volunteer has two descriptive titles. The first one, young, naive, and fighting poverty in Portsmouth in the late 60s. Or, what can a poor family do with 15 pounds a month of rolled oats and bulgur? <laughs> I like that one. Good question. Make a lot of porridge. Come on up. Robin Reed. Thank you. As a senior in college, I applied to be a VISTA volunteer, was accepted, and sent to Portsmouth in the summer of 1968 to be a community organizer in the city and county's low-income communities. I initially worked for the Rockingham County Community Action Program, the county's anti-poverty agency. I was 22, two weeks out of college, had done very little political work in college, and naive to say the least. VISTA, or Volunteers in Service to America, was part of Lyndon Johnson's War on Poverty and known as the <coughs> Domestic Peace Corps. There were about 30 of us in New Hampshire and my group was trained for a few weeks in Manchester. I don't think any of us were over 25 years old. After training, a few of us went, were sent to Rockingham County where the Community Action Program was headquartered in Portsmouth and still is. Fortunately, as it turned out, there were a few vistas in the state who had organizing experience in low-income communities, particularly in Appalachia. We were trained to tutor kids as a way of getting to know the communities we were being sent to, and then move on to be organizers, working on issues identified by low-income people and organizations as important to them. Just by luck, I was assigned to Portsmouth, which was a very different town then than it is now. In talking to low-income people, primarily single mothers receiving AFDC or aid to families with dependent children, which then was the federal welfare program, and staff of social service agencies in Portsmouth in the county, we learned about the surplus food program for low-income people administered by the counties. We found that few people were receiving surplus food. Some were able to receive food by applying to their 
town's overseer of the poor, which is what they were still called at the time. But half the towns in Rockingham County weren't participating in the program, and people had to go to Exeter to apply. No towns in Stratford County were participating, so everyone who wished to apply had to go to Dover. The surplus food program was started in the 1930s during the Depression. The United States Department of Agriculture bought food from farmers to keep prices up and to keep the farmers in business. The food was provided free to the states for low-income people. Eligible families received a monthly allotment of about 12 items such as juice, canned vegetables, cheese, peanut butter, rice, powdered milk, and even bulgur and rolled oats. Parts of the program still exist today, supplying food to schools, food banks, senior citizens, and other organizations. We also learned that AFTC recipients were being told by some county commissioners and local welfare officials that they weren't eligible for surplus food because their welfare checks had adequate money in them for food. We learned that there had been this had been going on for years and was illegal. Most AFTC recipients apparently were also not being informed about the program by the AFTC administrators. Yet the whole point of the surplus progr food program was to supplement people's meager welfare checks and food budgets. We went to the press, the governor, other social service agencies, and low-income community groups and created a stir in the state over the issue of surplus food in particular and hunger in New Hampshire in general. This new Manchester Union leader called us starry-eyed, tax-subsidized VISTA volunteers, which actually was accurate at the time. <laughs> the Portsmouth Herald was helpful and even called for the resignation of the Seacoast County Commissioner who was refusing to participate in the program. In Rockingham County, only 290 people were getting surplus food in July of 1968. By January, as a result of pressure on the counties to obey the law and are getting word out about the program to agencies and low-income people and organizations through leaflets, workshops, the press, etc., the number of people receiving food in the county went from 290 in July of 1968 to over 1,000 in six months. Throughout the state, more and more people were also applying for and began receiving food, over 10,000 within a year. Yet there were 18,000 people, primarily, AF, primarily children, on AFDC alone in the state, and at least twice that number, generally referred to as the working poor, were also eligible. The governor and legislature and social service agencies, churches, and other community organizations became involved in the issue. The governor at the time was the last liberal Republican governor in the state, the late Walter Peterson, who was sympathetic to what we were doing. But as you can imagine, there was resistance from conservatives, in particular the union leader. If you think the union leader is conservative now, you should have seen it in 1968 <laughs> when William Lowe was the publisher. It was vicious, to say the least, particularly against poor people. In Rockingham County, the three elected commissioners issued a statement saying, in part, we do not think that any agency should look for people in need to, or to encourage people to apply for welfare of any type. 
We believe that continuation of this practice will lead to the moral, social, and financial breakdown of the state. But that was our job, help people apply for programs that they legally were entitled to. As I said, the county commissioner for the Seacoast, who was based in Portsmouth, had for years refused to participate in the program. He said, my people are happy. This was 1968, which to me seems like yesterday and not 1938. As you can imagine, many people often didn't know what to do with items like bulgur and rolled oats, and we obviously didn't either. <laughs> we did our best working with nutrition students at UNH to run workshops on ways to use some of these items. In Portsmouth, each month when food was distributed, people lined up at the fire station and we joined the firemen who had volunteered to help load the boxes of food for people. In 1969, the legislature, in the middle of the surplus food controversy, refused to appropriate even $40,000 for a pilot food stamp program, which around the country was replacing the food stamp program. The state finally became the last state in the country to adopt the food stamp program. In 1975, 44,000 people were receiving food stamps in New Hampshire. Today, over 100,000 New Hampshire citizens participate in the successor to the food stamp program known as SNAP. Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. I'm happy to see the Portsmouth Farmers Market participates in SNAP as do other farmers markets around the state. As you know, there was a substantial turmoil in the country, turmoil in the country in the 60s and 70s. Those of us in New Hampshire worked for social justice in a variety of ways and on a variety of issues. We were idealistic, often naive, but I think we learned fast and helped low-income people develop their own community organizations and leaders to work on issues that affected their lives and make New Hampshire a better place to live. Sylvia Olson. She's lived in six, six different states and she likes the new ones best. New Hampshire, New Jersey, New York. Sylvia devoted much of her life of public service and social, uh, to social justice while working in western New York. Today she's relaxing in New Hampshire, climbing mountains, walking the beach, and writing short stories and memoirs about her life experiences and the people she came to know. The title of her story tonight is Confessions of a Professional Activist. Come on up, Sylvia. Thank you. <clears throat> My client told me that he had a sore on his foot, the wooden heel. Okay, I said, show me. So he took off his shoe and his sock, and he showed me his big toe. I had to see this toe because I needed to determine whether or not shutting off this guy's heat and electricity would cause him a health hardship next summer. I looked at his big toe. <clears throat> it was black. His skin was brown, but the sore was black. Necrosis 
or maybe you know it better as gangrene. This was an infection so bad, so deep, the flesh on his big toe was dying, rotting away. He was a tall, bony man in his 50s with a case of out-of-control diabetes. A big, friendly man with a wide smile full of white teeth. He was from the South. Uh, he had impeccable manners. He called me ma'am every chance he got and answering every question I asked him. He lived in a tiny one-room house. Maybe it was a garage at one, time, at one point in the backyard of another house. Probably in violation of the housing code illegal in this city. But it was, it was neat and clean and a cozy little place. I, I don't remember the man's name. When I asked him what he did for a living, he told me, working for my white people mostly. I was 24 and this was the first real job I could find after college. A woman with a bachelor's degree in political science who couldn't type fast was of no use to anyone in 1978 <laughs> with the unemployment rate at 15%. Somehow, I got this temporary job with the CETA program, the Comprehensive Employment and Training Act. This program was the breeding ground for half the professional staff at the city of Rochester, New York, a place where I would someday work, but I didn't know it then. This man's gangrene was so bad, his toe might have to be amputated. And that's if he was lucky and he got medical treatment in time. If he didn't get to the doctor in time, he could get sepsis, also known as blood poisoning. And sepsis can kill you. I wasn't a doctor, of course, just a poli-sci major. But my grandmother lost three of her sisters to diabetes before they were 30 years old. Other family members of mine have lost toes, feet, legs to gangrene. It's serious stuff. It's a real, with diabetes, it's a, an incredible risk factor. I never wanted to be a social worker. My plan was to change the world with good government but it was a paycheck, 40 hours a week, for the next six months anyway, and health insurance. And now, I wanted to help this guy with the gangrenous toe. I filled out his forms for Medicaid, for food stamps, told him about SSI, uh, that he was probably qualified. He couldn't read or write, he had no family, only a girlfriend, uh, he said, he told me. No phone, but I could call his girlfriend and she'd give him any messages. He said this, smiling and tearful. I told him he had to go to the doctor, to the emergency room, as soon as possible. I told him I would call him as soon as I got approval for his Medicaid. Back at my office in social services, I, I called Medicaid. I told them the guy might die if he didn't get to the hospital. 
I explained the gangrene. I told them to push it through the application, and the worker said she would see what she could do. I mean, she wanted to make sure that it was true, that what I was telling her wasn't a lie, and she probably, and she assumed I was lying, or at least he was. But I was able to call the girlfriend, and she was an older woman, I could tell, with a very sweet voice, and the man was there, and he came on the phone, and I told him his Medicaid had gone through, he had to go to the hospital and get that foot taken care of immediately, and he said, yes, ma'am, yes, ma'am over and over, and I could hear the big smile in his voice. I hope he survived the gangrene. I hope so, but I don't know. I met a lot of people on that job. I was trying to change the world, one person at a time. I remember the girl came crying to me with the baby in her arms and the $1,200 gas and electric bill in 1978. She told me she thought the heat, light, and the hot water was included in the rent. And at the end of the year, the gas and electric company came and read her meter and sent her the bill. A year's worth of utilities in one shot. How was this girl going to pay this bill? The only uh, uh, assistance that was available only would pay me maybe 250 bucks of that. I had no idea how she's going to pay it. There was the old guy, a veteran. He's living in the, in the house that he was born in with a bunch of smelly dogs and junk everywhere. He was starting to shrivel up from hunger because he couldn't leave the house, he said, because he had to get gallbladder surgery, but he couldn't afford it. He had to stay close to home in case he had an accident. I called adult services to check on him, get him on Medicaid, some Meals on Wheels. The guy was going to end up dead in there with all those dogs. Happens a lot in the city. Lots of people die alone. Then there was a little boy four years old. After I met with his parents to talk about their energy bills, he put on his rain boots and his little rain coat, and he followed me down the stairs out into the snow and ice. He begged me to take him with me. Later, I told the family's caseworker about this, and she assured me that little boy was fine. She was keeping an eye on the parents. They had already had two children removed from their home because of neglect. Not abuse, she said, neglect. I worry about that little boy who's all grown up now. Then there was the young woman my age who grabbed me off the street, taking me her in, into her sad, beat-up old apartment, begging me to help her. She was covered with bruises and scars. She told me a man was beating her, forcing her into prostitution. She didn't want to lose her kids, she said. She didn't want to go to jail for prostitution, and if she was arrested one more time, her kids would be taken away from her. She'd never see them again. Tears were running down her cheeks. I didn't know what to say. I was scared. I was so scared for her. 
I might have told her about a woman's shelter. I, I might have given her a phone number. I, I don't even remember. I worry about her most of all. I can see her face clearly, her, t her tears, her horrible bruises, scrapes on her face, even after all these years. A few years later, I got the job at City Hall. I worked in human resources, and because we were flaming liberals, our mission was to break down the barriers to employment for women and minorities. So I did all the other routine personnel work with six unions, civil service, and a whole lot of egotistical, angry, and self-righteous co-workers while breaking down those barriers. When you say activism, maybe you think of marching protesters, waving signs, chanting. I don't like chanting, and Ralph Nader, my hero, said the best way to change society is to get an education, wear the same clothes as the establishment, and fight them on their own ground. And that's what I did, or at least I tried. I did the best I could because I knew who I was working for, not some guy with a nice suit, expensive car, good haircut, a big house in the suburbs with a pool, trophy wife, and a golf club membership with perfect teeth and see-through skin, I wasn't working for that guy. I'm not trying to make his world a better place. Nope. I worked for that guy with the gangrenous toe. The little boy who wanted to come home with me, the poor young woman with the bruises and the scars, the woman I couldn't help. I worked for her, and that's my confession. Next up, we have Gordon Merrick. He grew up in a small town of Arundel, Maine, surrounded by lots of forest and agriculture, both of which encouraged his love for the outdoors and his fascination with uh, interacting with it. <laughs> when he was at the University of Maine through a program called Extractive Energy Immersion, Gordon went on a two-week bus tour of several energy extraction sites across the Northeast. Those two weeks gave him a first-hand look into the travesties extraction energies inflict upon our shared environment. He finished his degree in political science with a concentration in legal studies and now fights for intersectional justice, is that intersectional justice indeed, a fair economy and a clean environment. His story is titled, The Bus Ride to Activism. <laughs> Um, so I just want to give a quick disclaimer. Uh, I most likely will start crying at some point during the story. <laughs> um, you know, activism is inherently something that we rush towards, um, you know, trauma and hardship and things like that. And so feeling those emotions are important. Um, and just wanted to get that out of the way first. Um, so just to give you a quick framework of who I was um, at this point in my life, it was a long time ago, three years uh, back in 2013, um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 
I was coming from an education in political science. I've worked on political campaigns for a little bit here and there, uh, but never really found any refuge in the word activist, never really saw myself as someone practicing in activism. Um, yeah, and you know, this takes place during the senior year of my uh, career at University of Maine. Um, I was taking a course called uh, world Population, Food Supply, and the Environment with one of my professors and now close friends, Aaron Hoshide. Uh, so Aaron and I became close during that uh, course, mainly because it was really close to my thesis work, which was looking at agriculture policy and carbon emissions. And that's about all I'll talk about that because I don't want to put people to sleep right now. Um, <laughs> Aaron one day sent me an email about this program. Uh, called the Extraction Energy Immersion Course through the Expedition Education Institute, um, which was an amazing small program out of uh, Marlborough College, which is a small college in Vermont. Um, and he wrote a like, wrote a email to the people who run the program. It was leaving in two weeks. He petitioned for me to get in and petitioned for me to get a scholarship at the same time. I was able to go two weeks later, I found myself in Unity, Maine, getting on an old Thomas school bus that was retrofitted to fit 16 people, all of our gear, and enough food for about three weeks. Um, but probably the most exciting part about this bus wasn't that it was able to fit all of us and all of our gear and everything like that, but in the back. Um, the back was there is a place where we called the black hole, which we could fit all of our camping gear, like our sleeping bags and things like that. And we drew straws on who was able to sit in the black hole while we were driving. Um, there was a, the coolers that kept our food safe <laughs> over the next three weeks, which was relatively important. Um, there's the music box, which held all of the instruments that continued to uh, entertain us over the two week course. Um, but something that I found refuge in was the library. Um, the library was something that helped me a lot, uh, especially due to an all-nighter I pulled to finish my first draft of my thesis while on the drive, and that was a relief, definitely. Um, but it was also, it exposed me to a lot of writings of activism um, and social justice that I had never really been exposed to as a white male, in Maine, <laughs> um, you know, I I was never exposed to the topics of racial justice, of economic justice, even. Um, so that was something that really moved me. Uh, but I digress. Um, we were on the bus. We we're on our way from Unity, Maine, to Boston, Massachusetts, where we would meet the rest of our class members and crash on the floor of a alumni of the Expedition Education Institute. Um, we got to share some stories. I got to listen to some stories about uh, activism in the past and experiences on the bus um, and things like that. <laughs> Excuse me. So next day, we leave Boston. Um, we are going to understand what the extraction ec economy is doing to our environment, our economy in general, but most importantly to the people um, that call here home. Um, so we first stop is northern New York uh, to visit the co-founder of the Catskill Mountain Keepers who were fighting to 
work towards a moratorium for horizontal fracturing or hydrofracking, if some people might know it, in New York, which I'm happy to say is now a thing. Um, there is no fracking in New York State right now. Thank you, Andrew Cuomo. Um, <laughs> so we were at the co-founder, which is Wes Gillingham's house. Um, and when we talk about like slices of utopia, everything like that, Wes Gillingham, he, that was the whole utopia. You know, it was, they had the farm, they had the small homestead where they were able to raise their, all their own food, they built their own house, everything was perfect. Um, but the fight to keep it that way was, was in the midst of a big struggle. Um, we were talking with them about that uh, fight to get that moratorium for hydrofracturing, uh, hydrofracturing and really to keep their water safe. Um, and that was something that I've never really thought about. Uh, being in Maine, we, didn't have, we don't have any fossil fuel resources anywhere, which is great. Um, some might some might say otherwise, but I was very happy about that. Uh, but you know, the conversations that we had in that house and that very very safe space um, started a conversation that would only grow over those next two weeks of that course. Um, so from New York, uh, where we had just talked about a lot of these issues that we'd be facing over the next two weeks, we went to the middle of um, fracking nation, which was Dimmick, Pennsylvania. Um, I don't know if anyone here has seen the film Gasland, uh, but Dimmick, Pennsylvania is one of the main towns featured in Gasland. Uh, we were in those kitchens. Um, we were in visiting the families that were being most affected by fracking. Um, you know, in the film, they show people lighting their water on fire. By the time we got there, they couldn't do that anymore um, because the methane in the water was getting so dense, fire couldn't even exist because there was such a lack of oxygen. You know, there was a lighter and they would be moving it towards the faucet slowly and the fire would go out, you know. And that's, seeing that in a film is one thing, you know, you're saying like, oh, that's terrible. All right, now I'm gonna go eat dinner, um, you know, but. Being in that kitchen and witnessing people not feel comfortable in their own, own homes, um, not feel comfortable in the places that they have lived and been raised continually over 200 years, um, their families had never left Dimmick, was something completely different. Um, you know, and after we visited some of these homes, the next day we visited some of the drilling platforms uh, where the fracking was actually taking place. Um, it, some might call it trespassing, some might call it just exploring, uh, but we, we went there either way. Uh, um, and we witnessed the toxic chemicals coming out of the holding tanks that were said to be safe. Um, we were witnessing some of the things that were happening there that just weren't being protected. Um, and that again, raised some alarms for me that I would have never been able to really feel um, or have those alarms trigger in my brain. Um, so after seeing these things um, and really kind of absorbing a lot of things over those two days, uh, we went back to our campsite, which was in a nice state park, and we just reflected. Uh, we really talked about 
the things that we're seeing, the ways that we're feeling, um, the fact that in a place that we call America, like arguably the greatest nation that has ever been on the face of the earth, people don't have water. Uh, people don't feel safe in their homes. Uh, and that was, that was moving. Um, and that conversation continually went back to what the hell can we do about this? Um, what can we as ordinary citizens do to stand up and fight back? Um, and that was a conversation, again, you know, just a continuing conversation from that first day of different stages uh, within a movement. Um, so after that day of reflection, after that day of being able to really soak in everything that we've seen um, and talk about those things, we then moved over to West Virginia, which is coal country um, and a very popular method of getting that coal in West Virginia's mountaintop removal. Um, now, I thought fracking was an invasive way to get a fossil fuel out of the ground. Uh, then I saw a mountain that was no longer a mountain. Um, you know, you could see the profile, it was going up, and then it was just flat. It was just rubble. It was nothing. There was no vegetation. There's no anything. We were shown around by local activists um, who showed us the bullet holes on their house from local people that depended on the coal mines for their livelihood. Um, coming to their house and saying, we don't welcome you here. And, you know, that was an interesting thing because they had a constant struggle of fighting against the people that they were trying to save. Um, and that was just another level of activism that I've never was exposed to. Um, after these few days, um, reflection and talking with these people who are in the midst of activism at its very raw stages, uh, we were able to end at the Power Shift Conference in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Um, this was my first exposure ever to anything like this. Um, so I was feeling a lot of emotions being at these places and seeing these stories and hearing and feeling all of these things that I've never been exposed to. And then all of a sudden going to a conference where the focus was youth activism. Um, the focus was what we can actually do about this and the tools and the organizing models and things like that to actually fight back. Um, sorry, I lost my place a little bit. Um, you know, and being in that space and really feeling these things um, after witnessing the atrocities, atrocities that were happening to real people that I have met and now continue to talk to um, and the struggles that they're going to continue to face, uh, I did a lot of self-reflecting. You know, the struggles that I thought were so important um, back at home, back at school, just kind of melted away. Um, you know, that term paper and thesis that I was stressing about at the very beginning of this, <laughs> this whole venture was all of a sudden nothing. So after that conference, um, I committed myself to activism. Um, I graduated from University of Maine. I then continued to work for climate justice um, and intersectional justice in general. Uh, and, you know, that 
two week period that I got on that bus and was able to share and listen to the stories of people that were in the midst of something that I will never be able to experience was something that was incredibly moving and will never leave me for as long as I live. Um, and I'd just like to leave you with a quick quote that my friend Maria Barth uh, told me and her grandmother told her. Um, and it's, if you see something and happen to think, somebody should do something about this. Remember that you're somebody. <laughs> Thank you, Gordon. Youth activism, that gives us hope. And now, by contrast. <laughs> I'm going to introduce Arnie Alpert. He has served as co-director of the American Friends Service Committee's New Hampshire program since 1981. In that position, he provides nonviolent action training, lobbies on matters of public po policy, publishes articles in local papers, and helps New Hampshire groups organize effective campaigns for social justice and peace. From 1988 to 2000, Arnie served as communications coordinator for the Martin Luther King Committee, leading um, the efforts to win passage of MLK Day, which we celebrate here in New Hampshire in January now. He co-hosts a radio show on WNHM called State House Watch. His story tonight is titled, again, <laughs> two titles. <laughs> We're such an indecisive group of storytellers. <laughs> From the prodigious hilltops of New Hampshire, let freedom ring. Or, how I became a daily reader of the Manchester Union leader. <laughs> okay, Arnie. <laughs> so like some of our other storytellers here, I can remember a moment when I took a step uh, that when I took it, it just seemed like a relatively normal thing to do. But now when I look back on it, I realize it was a step that changed my life. And I bet you've got some moments like that. And I'm not talking about like when you had a baby or got married or, you know, things that you knew were momentous all along. But this was just something that just seemed kind of normal. And for me, that moment was on a January day in 1983 in Manchester, New Hampshire. I had been to a statewide gathering of Quakers. Uh, probably at the Unitarian Church. And by the time the gathering was over, there was a ferocious blizzard that was going on. And there was no way I was driving back home after that blizzard. So my friend Betsy Kasdan, who was there, said, hey, Arnie, there, I hear there's some sort of a Martin Luther King birthday program going on over Brookside Church. You want to go? So I said, well, sure. So Betsy and I and Betsy's uh, stepdaughter, uh, Hannah went over to this thing, and I still remember to this day stepping, walking down the steps into the parish hall at Brookside Church, which is this big, gigantic church on North Elm Street in Manchester. And down in the little parish hall down below was a small gathering of 50 or 100 people, many of them African-American, people I did not know. This was the first ever Martin Luther King Day celebration in Manchester and perhaps in the entire state. What was going on at that time was there was a movement for a national holiday in honor of Dr. King. Uh, and to try to move that movement forward, Dr. King's widow, Coretta Scott King, had suggested that community groups all over the country organize Martin Luther King Day birthday programs. And in Manchester, the local NAACP, the Black Scholarship Foundation, and the YWCA took on that task and organized this first celebration. And by chance of this blizzard, 
I was fortunate enough to be able to go to that. And that's where I met people who have had a lasting impact on my life. And I'm thinking in particular of Lionel Johnson, a small businessman, an African-American man who got, came up from Louisiana, stationed in Manchester during World War II. Uh, and when the war was over, he said to himself, you know, Manchester's a hell of a lot better place for me to raise a family than Louisiana. And he moved. And he was not the only person uh, in that circumstance. But from listening to Lionel, it was not an easy thing being a black person and trying to raise a black family in New Hampshire in the 1950s and 1960s. And Lionel was one of the people who stepped forward and organized a local branch of the NAACP, which, again, in Manchester in the early 60s, that was a radical courageous thing to do. Uh, and the union leader was part of why that was courageous, because they put up a lot of resistance to that, to that type of activism. So for me, meeting Lionel, meeting Sandy Hicks, meeting Inez Bishop, meeting Bruce Bynum, meeting other people who were going to stand up in New Hampshire and find some way that they could stand up for dignity and civil rights, that was important to me. And that was someplace I wanted to be. So I came back the next year. And the next year after the celebration, I said, well, gosh, can I get involved in this? So then I joined the planning committee and organized this Martin Luther King Day celebration for 1985 and the one for 1986. Turned out that in 1983, the King holiday legislation actually passed the United States Congress. And if you can believe this, it was signed into law by President Ronald Reagan to go into effect in 1986. So by 1986, most of the states in the United States of America had also made this holiday a state holiday, but not New Hampshire. And it just seemed normal that we would follow on. So in 1987, legislation was introduced at the State House. Now, this was not the first time. The first time legislation for a King holiday was introduced at the State House in Concord was by Portsmouth's State Senator Jim Splane, who brought it up in 1979, and it was defeated. And it was brought up again in 1981 and defeated, and brought up again in 1983 and defeated, and brought up again in 1985 and defeated. And now it was coming up again in 1987 after the country was now on board with organizing Martin Luther King Day and observing it. And in 1987, it was defeated again. So at this point, the group of us who were organizing this Martin Luther King Day program in Manchester said, this has got to stop. We've got to organize now. Because there really hadn't been an organized movement for this holiday. It was a matter of, as, as Robin knows, any one of our 400 state reps can put his name or her name on a piece of legislation, and it gets debated and voted on and does not guarantee that it's going to pass. Uh, so we decided that we needed to let the state legislators know that this was something that people in New Hampshire cared deeply about. And if we let them know how deeply we cared about it, then obviously they would pass it. So we invited people from uh, Portsmouth and Nashua to join us. And that's when I got to start working closely with people like Valerie Cunningham, with Al Jean Bailey, with Juanita Bell, names that might be familiar to some of you here from Portsmouth. And we formed something that was called the Martin Luther King Day Committee. And I became, in effect, the coordinator because I was the one who was in Concord and I could kind of keep an eye on what was going on at the State House and help everybody else know what was going on and as we decided what were the actions to take to let people know how that they could be involved, where they needed to write letters, when they needed to show up, when they needed to organize demonstrations or whatever it was so that we could let our legislators know that this was something that was important to me. Now I would walk to my office every day uh, and I would often stop and at the local newsstand and take a look at the daily newspaper, the Manchester Union Leader, the major newspaper in the state. And at that time, they typically put an editorial on the front page. 
and the editorial section was at the beginning of the second section. So it was pretty easy to pick up the paper without buying it, <laughs> look at the editorial, see who they were attacking, flip to the editorial page, see what was going on, and then go about my business. And the reason that this was important was because at that time, their chief editorial writer, Mr. Jim Finnegan, took it upon himself to try to stop New Hampshire from getting a Martin Luther King holiday. And oftentimes, there were editorials trying to give the argument for why New Hampshire should not do this, why we should not follow the example of the other states or follow the, the direction that people like us were trying to say what should happen. And in general, his argument, I'll boil it down, he said Martin Luther King deserves honor as the leader, primary leader of the civil rights movement, which was very important, but he should not be honored with a state holiday because of his treacherous, treasonous, traitorous opposition to the U.S. war in Vietnam. And this went on day after day after day after day, literally dozens of editorials, and I've got a file of them this thick back in my office. You can come look at it someday. Um, so part of what this did for me was that I, as the communications guy, I needed to know what was going on, what was behind it. So when he said, you know, Dr. King said this, or Dr. King did this, I wanted to know, for starters, well, is this even true? So part of what happened was I started to dig into the literature. So when he said things like, you know, Martin Luther King, how could he have said that the United States was the greatest purveyor of violence in the world? So I went back and reread Dr. King's speeches about Vietnam. And yes, in fact, Dr. King said, the United, how can I preach nonviolence to people when my own country, the United States, is the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today? And then I dug in deeper and tried to figure out well, what was going on in April of 1967. If you look at what was happening in Vietnam, the United States, over the course of that war, dropped 7 million tons of bombs on Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos. That is more than twice as much explosive power as the United States and the Allies used in all of World War II and all the theaters of that war. So maybe Dr. King had a point, right? <laughs> Um, but I dug into the literature. I read David Garrow's biography, which came out, and I read Taylor Branch's biographies that were coming out, and I dug into the work of, um, of Dr. Vincent Harding, who was a close friend of Dr. King's, and who talked about King as a prophet of democracy, who needed to be lifted up as an important figure in the times that we were living in. And that helped me keep going on this struggle that went on year after year, because our, our movement in a sense, we failed again when legislation was introduced in 1989 and was defeated, and introduced again in 1991 and defeated, introduced again in 1993 and defeated, 1994 defeated, 1995 defeated, 1997 defeated by one vote, right? We kept going, though. I mean, in a sense, each time this was defeated, the movement for passage of this holiday actually got stronger. And it got stronger in particular because young people, by then I was, you know, 20 years older than I had been when this started. <laughs> um, but the young people started to pick up on it. And then the young people started organizing demonstrations at the State House uh, and things like that. And that's what kept this going until finally in 1999 it passed. And by then it seemed like it had been inevitable. Right? So why does this matter now? All right? So one of the things to say is that the holiday for Dr. King is not primarily 
for us to go look back at history and all the important things that happened in the 1950s and 1960s. The issues that Dr. King dealt with and the way that he approached them are just as important now, arguably more important now than they were back then. Think back to just about a year ago when Donald Trump announced that he was calling for a ban on all Muslims from coming to the United States. And you may recall that his first event after that was held right here in Portsmouth, New Hampshire at the Sheridan Harbor side, where he was getting the endorsement of a police union. And with about 24 hours notice, the AFSC and Seacoast Occupy organized a demonstration outside where some of you probably were there, raise your hands. Um, but one of the things that I remember from that is one of the signs that we brought with us had a quote from Dr. King. It said, darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate, only love can do that. Right, so these, it's, it, that type of wisdom that he was able to bring forward in a way that still is with us and still speaks to the conditions we face now is one of the reasons why Dr. King and his holiday are so important. Uh, I can, I'm thinking about a Black Lives Matter march that was in Manchester last July, and I'm a little embarrassed. I can't even remember which killing this march followed, but we had a couple of hundred people out in the streets. We had armed counter demonstrators there. So the spirit of nonviolence was essential to be part of this. But I remember people carrying signs with quotes from Dr. King that said things like, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And that spirit was with us. Think about the Black Lives Matter movement. Think about the flack that that movement is getting. Go back and read the letter from the Birmingham jail that Dr. King wrote when he was locked up in a cell in 1963 because the civil rights movement of that time was being told by liberal white clergy that they were demanding change too fast. And the letter from Birmingham jail is a result. And it's not only an argument for why action was needed at that time, but it is the best ever description of sort of how a nonviolent campaign develops the stages that you go through from researching the issue, spiritual preparation and training, attempting to negotiate with your adversary, and if necessary, taking nonviolent direct action, with the aim in the end being the creation of the beloved community, not the defeat of your enemy. This is the stuff that we need right now. Think about, we don't know what we're going to be facing over the next few years, but if we've got Dr. King and others like him as prophets, for activism, profits for love, profits for nonviolence, profits for a world free of war, free of racism, free of what Dr. King referred to as the triple evils of racism, poverty, and war, uh, we'll be able to get somewhere. And then we can let freedom ring from the prodigious hilltops of New Hampshire. Thank you. Thank you so much to tonight's wonderful storytellers and to our fabulous audience. Wangari Mathai, the founder of the Green Belt Movement and 2004 Nobel Peace Prize laureate, is quoted as saying, I don't really know why I care so much. I just have something inside me that tells me that there is a problem and I have got to do something about it. We're, um, we are honored to have heard tonight from other people who care and are doing something about it and know that many in this room, even who didn't get to tell stories, believe that as well. 
Coming up next, we are going to have an interview of two of tonight's storytellers, Arnie Alpert and Robin Reed. But um, first, a little more information for you. True Tales Live will be back on December 27th with the theme of awe, A-W-E, slash wow, <laughs> which still has room for more storytellers. You can email us at truetaleslive1, not written out, just a number, at gmail.com if you would like one of those slots. And if you would like to tell a story here, but want some help with that or, unsure, or are unsure of yourself, we do have monthly storytelling workshops. They are, gonna be, they are being held here, PPM TV, the first Tuesday of each month from 7.30 to 9 p.m. They're free and open to everyone, and the next one is December 6th. Um, we also have our themes out for 2017. I'll give you a few. Disagreements and resolutions, January. Apologies and regrets, and best laid plans. There's a whole bunch more, so look those up. Um, this show is going to continue at PPM TV every last Tuesday of the month from 6.30 to 8. And we do have room for a studio audience, so come on over and join us. Um, the show is going to air on Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. and Saturdays at 1 p.m., starting on December 6th on Comcast Channel 98. And will be available under the True Tales playlist anytime as video on demand, and that is at youtube.com slash ppmtv. So um, I'd like to ask you to give your thanks to a few people who make the show possible. I'm just going to give you some names here. Pat Spaulding, Steve Koval, David Frainer, Bill Humphreys, Chad Cordner, and of course, our wonderful founder, John Lover. Until our next True Tales radio show on December 27th, I'm Amy Antonucci, and I thank you on behalf of us all for listening. And now we're going to have a quick break, and then Pat and David will come back for those promised interviews. Thank you. about getting together the, the, all the, from activism, you, you moved into regular politics, things yeah. happened, and um, so what's, what's next? What's, what's your focus now? Well, I guess what I want to talk, I mean, what I, my focus now is just trying to figure out what just happened with the election and what are the fights that we're going to need to fight. How are we going to defend the people who are most immediately threatened, uh, immigrants, Muslims? Uh, and others? How are we going to defend people who are at risk of getting kicked out of health care and then their lives will be at risk? So figuring out those defensive battles is important, but we've also always got to be, you know, in a sense looking over the horizon and figuring out how are we building alternatives and how are we building movements for lasting change when we uh, hopefully get through this phase. Right, and, and this lasting change it not all about 
protest. It's about you know, if you, if you think about Kathy's story about the Clamshell Alliance and the demonstrations against Seabrook, it was the demonstrations and the mass arrests that got most of the attention and that still, in a sense, make for better stories. But if you think back about what was the power of the No Nukes movement, it wasn't just the protests, is that you had these little local pockets of people doing community education, people showing slideshows, people writing songs and singing on street corners, people circulating petitions. You did have people running for office. We had Republican allies in the state legislature who represented towns like Hampton Falls and Hampton, but who didn't want the nuke to get built. They were our friends and allies while we were there. Back were, at that time? Yeah. We, they weren't going to go get arrested, but they were kind of smiling on the side, and we would could strategize with them. We had people trying to take over their local electric cooperatives, like the New Hampshire Electric Co-op, to try to keep the co-op from uh, buying into Seabrook. We had people buying shares of stock and going to the stockholder meetings at Public Service Company of New Hampshire, nominating each other to be on the board of directors, making speeches, but actually building alliances with stockholders, mainstream stockholders who are starting to think, you know what, this nuclear power investment might just be so a risky deal. So building alliances with yeah. a more conservative... Well, with all sorts of people, but also yeah. lots of different types of community organization and lots of different types of organizing, not just protests. Protests by themselves don't frankly do that much. Protest as part of a movement and as part of strategic campaigns so it instigates can help to instigate, and, get right. people involved, and then think about what else can we do. How about you, Robin? Well, I ran after being involved, well, being involved with the clamshell. In 1980, I ran for the state legislature from Portsmouth. It became clear that the struggle against Seabrook was going to go into the legislature, the Republican-dominated legislature, the state um, governor put a bill to have a bailout of Seabrook financially, and the Republican-controlled legislature defeated that bill by one vote. Mm -hmm. And the company went into bankruptcy, and there's all kinds of, of issues that went from there um, where we really were building up um, support from not just activists, not just Democrats but for Republicans for a variety of reasons. Um, and I mentioned that to get sort of change the subject to possibly a little bit lighter issue, I talked a little bit about the union leader and <laughs> the culture of the state at the time and how naive we were. For some reason, the state gave each of us, or at least each apartment, a state car that was a, had been a police, state police cruiser that was one step from the junkyard. And these were big, huge, gray Dodge with huge engines, the state seal on the side, state plates. And you know, this was in 68, 69, 70, where we were all very young. So it sounds like a gift. Well, it was a gift, but we were moving targets. Um, people started to grow our hair a little bit long. Um, one night we stopped at a restaurant, which is now across the street from the Golden Egg, which was Lads. Oh, yeah. Lads also had music and dancing. Next day, misuse of state cars by Vista volunteers on the front page of the union leader. Oh, so it was some a setup. state rep, no, some oh. state rep had driven by Lads at the time, saw the state car, assumed that we were misusing it, called the union leader. Um, we, when we go through toll booths, we didn't have to pay. You just waved. The toll booth operators, God knows what they thought. 
Um, and there was also an incident where a VISTA volunteer was, a white woman VISTA volunteer, was going to the, a tenant conference in Boston and had signed out a University of New Hampshire state car. On the way back, she, they the, the, the person she went with was a black African, a black local activist in the tenants movement. They stopped at a diner on Route 1 to eat, front page the next day, union leader. State rep, black man, white woman, seen at Route 1 diner. Um, but we, we uh, worked with, against that, and well, I would say actually one of the things that I've learned from my daily reading of the Union Leaders, many of their reporters are good people and do a good job. So it's a good idea to read it and know, but also read it with a critical eye. At the time, it was the entire paper was conservative. The reporters were conservative, the front page editorials, they were vicious against the poverty program. Um, some business took, in 1968, took a few um, local people in Manchester with poor people's campaign. Washington, the union leader reporter went to their homes, talked to their neighbors, talked to their kids, you know, why were they doing this? It was delicious. Well, I think, I think I'm going to thank you now <laughs> <laughs> for um, Arnie Elbert and Robin Reed, um, activists still working in New Hampshire for New Hampshire for the side of what is right. Drew Tales Live on PPM-TV is made possible through the generous support of Artists Collaborative Theatre of New England, Act One, presenting outstanding performances of Stories with Heart at the West End Studio Theatre in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. For further information, contact 603-300-2986 or on the web at act1nh.org. With additional support from Pat Spaulding, who really wants to know, hey, what's your story? And by contributions from Jan Hansen. <laughs>